Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Singsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Language and Japanese War Heritage. This week we're joined by Wun Jian Ho, Printmaker and Research Associate at the University of West England's Centre for Print Research to discuss the place of Mokuhanga, or woodblock printmaking, in the global spread of traditional crafts. Wun Jian Ho walks us through her path to Mokuhanga, her experience learning from a master printmaker in Japan, and how learning these traditional methods have shaped her growth as an artist. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good morning, Wun Jen. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Nice to meet you, Oliver. It's fantastic to be here. So first off, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Okay, um, my name is Wun Jin, and I'm a printmaker, and... That means I'm an artist that uses print in my artistic output, but I'm also a research associate at the Centre for Fine Print Research in the University of West of England in Bristol. So I edit an academic journal and I'm doing a PhD on printmaking and the mechanisms of touch when you make prints. So three-pronged kind of print-related lifestyle, as it were, work style. So um, on your website, you have a blog entitled Diary of a Printmaker with an impressive array of your line and cut works. However, you present yourself as a multimedia artist who has worked with animation, drawing and photography. How did you become a printmaker rather than an animator or photographer? Was that something apparent from the beginning of your artistic career? Okay, I actually probably did come to art through print because I grew up in Oxford, which is quite close to an art fair called Art in Action. And it was a four-day event intense in a field. And you could learn artistic techniques in really short bite-sized lessons for children. And I think I was about 11 when I did a lino cut class. My very first print was a picture of a cat on a roof. And I remember being really thrilled that when I pulled the paper back, I could see this image that I could make more of. So printmaking for me became a real passion and something I would do in my spare time. And for me, it's it's a kind of like, it's a way of making an image which asks the question, what happens next? So you kind of make a print and then you can easily modify the matrix and make another print that's slightly different. Or you can make a print and then you can think to yourself, well, what happens around the corner? What's on the other side of this image? And when you work in series like that, it naturally falls into book arts and animation and by extension into film. So at heart, I'm a storyteller and I really love narrative. And I think printmaking sort of does that naturally. Mm. So your printing style is derived from Mokuhanga, a Japanese water-based woodblock printing. Could you explain for our listeners how this is distinct from other woodblock printing techniques and how you came to adopt this style? Okay, I have to um, give you a bit of life history here um, because <laughs> um, I grew up in a family where my dad was a vet and my mom was a nurse and I'm the oldest daughter. So they were very, very keen for me to take over the family business. 
So I mentioned to you I loved print when I was a child, but they were keen for me to at least study something that had a kind of profession at university. So I went to university and trained as a vet and um, made prints in my spare time. And halfway through the course, I thought, I can't, I can't do this um, this profession. It's too difficult. It's, it's too different from my natural um, passion. And so I took a year out and I ended up in Japan teaching English on the JET program. And this was my first introduction to living in Japan and the tools and materials that they had in the stationery shop that you could use to make nengajo or New Year cards. So I remember taking home some pieces of Japanese vinyl and little blocks of wood and buying a little set of carving tools and making prints in my living room in the house where I was staying in Kagoshima. So this was my first introduction to printmaking from a Japanese perspective. And um, in my final year of college and vet school, I thought, well, there is this incredible opportunity to apply for a Japanese government scholarship, the Monbu Kagakusho Scholarship. So I applied with my portfolio and I was incredibly lucky to be awarded this scholarship to go and study in a university in Japan and to study Mokohanga, which is Japanese woodblock printmaking over there. So it's a bit of a funny story because um, it's not really very straightforward. So I ended up going to uh, Osaka Kyoiku Daigaku, which is Osaka Educational, Educational University. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't my first choice university, but due to the kind of sudden economic recession, I ended up there. And actually, nobody really knew how to do Mokohanga, Japanese woodblock printmaking, in the college where I was. So I ended up joining the swim team and taking photos and making rings. And I tell you about the swim team because I think that taught me more potentially about how to make than any other experience that has happened in my life. So basically, I'm not a brilliant swimmer, but I love swimming. And the only way to swim in the university pool was to join the team. And I found myself in a group of very talented young people who were at the time the best team in, in the university championships. And we would train two hours a day. And in the summer, we had camps. We trained for four hours a day, like two hours in the morning and two hours at night. And I realized that I was never going to be very good. I was always the slowest. So (laughs) get to the end of the lane and everybody would go, hoi, and then we'd go off and swim again. And they would finish their uh, drills and then they'd wait for me to catch up. And the minute I got to the end, they'd set off again. So I was permanently the worst person, um, which was really embarrassing situation, but made me think, why do we do anything in life at all? I mean, do we do things because we're brilliant at them or do we do them because they are an interesting thing to do? Or do we think that even if you have no positive feedback, just the act of doing something is enough in in and of itself? I think that's a kind of contrast between being goal-oriented and being practice-based, somebody who's 
I'm mm. interested in doing something for its own sake. And I learned that I was never going to be the best, but that it was enough for me to be on the journey. So um, <laughs> that's what happened. I, I was part of the swim team. I, I told them I wouldn't compete because I would bring their scores down, but they did win the All Japan contest that year. And I think I put my ego to one side, you know, and I experienced the, I think it's probably a very Japanese sense of encouraging each other, no matter how good you are in the group that I learned.、Mm. And just the sheer physical pleasure of being in the water had to be enough. Being the best was not really the aim of the practice. And、um, I kind of dive into art in a similar way. I kind of think, okay, I'm going on a journey. I'm going to enjoy this journey. I'm not sure where the goal is. And、um, I think turning up and having a go is as valid as, being, as turning up and being brilliant. Maybe, maybe it's, it's never going to be <laughs> within grasp to, to try and be brilliant immediately, but to turn up is, is a very valid、uh, thing、mm. to do. So, yeah, I think it sounds <laughs> surprisingly similar to academia. I think that、uh, many academics suffer from imposter syndrome and this、uh, pressure to be the most prolific writer of articles or the cutting edge of research, but.、Um, You have to check yourself and say that, well, you know, I'm, I'm contributing, I'm doing something I love, and that, that needs to be enough, you know. <laughs> well, then you become more authentic because, in a way, if you're always trying to focus on the end result, it can hamper your,、uh, your freedom in the moment、um, mm. for something to change. So I normally. Try not to、um, promise anything when I make something. I don't tell someone, I'm going to make a picture about this because I think, in a way, that would destroy the, the mystery and the authenticity of what is going to develop. And I have to be in the moment and kind of respond to what the picture is telling me in a way. I, I'm kind of a guardian or a, you know, an enabler. But not necessarily a driving force with an end goal in mind. And I think we have the same in research. We have to be open to maybe something unexpected coming up in our research and thinking, okay, well, that wasn't what I expected, but I might have to go along that path and see whether it takes me somewhere new.、Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I like it. Yeah, definitely. So, you went to university.、Uh, they didn't teach Mokahanga. You joined the swim team. How did you arrive at Mokahanga? <laughs> <laughs> So, I took the money and I ran away.、Um, to, <laughs> I did sort of do that. I went to, I enrolled as a private student to the university, which I had originally been promised a place in, Kyoto Seiki University, because Kurosaki Akira, the, the amazing、um, kind of print artist of the 20th century,、uh, was the head of the department there. And he is an incredible. Mokohanga artist. He passed away a couple of years ago, but I, I regard him as the print god. So I went there to study. And once again, it was not what I expected from having been to university in the West. I found myself carrying his books. <laughs> I found myself really having to attend to learning by watching 
and absorbing because things weren't explained in a verbal, linear sense in the way that I'd expected. So I learned to copy his movements. And I think there's probably a, a whole range of people who have copied his movements and have disseminated that copied movement to their students, which is really interesting. The lineage of how we learn is probably traceable back to certain masters who have taught key teachers. Yeah, so I learned how to make mokohango, Japanese woodblock technique. It's very simple. It's a printing technique that involves water. So you wet the block, it's a wood block, and um, you add a little bit of glue, and then you put some paint on it, and you brush it in with a, a bamboo brush that has deer and horse hair, pig hair. Very low tech. And then you use damp paper, which you press on the back with hand pressure to transfer the pigment from the wood to the fibers of the paper. And it's so simple and yet so difficult. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those things like learning to play the guitar. It's like a, in, if you describe it in words, it sounds like a fairly straightforward uh, premise, but you realize very quickly that it's all down to humidity and uh, tempo and pressure and uh, evenness and maybe a kind of very sensitive way of handling your tools. And suddenly you realize there's a real kind of unspoken art form to being able to produce a, a flat area of color or, or to produce um, a certain effect. Yeah, it sounds like a very practical knowledge rather than something you read and learn from a book. <laughs> Definitely. And um, that's actually what my PhD is about, is about capturing what I call tacit knowledge and the knowledge that we know in our bodies and we find very hard to put into words. And um, my recent obsession is with gomazuri, sesame seed effect. Have you heard of this? That's new to me. So sesame seed effect is this really beautiful um, effect that happens with Japanese woodblock. And it happens when you don't have that much glue and you have quite a lot of water in your mix. And it often happens at the beginning of the printing session when you first made your block and you just started printing. And it happens a lot with beginners as well. And what happens is the color just splits into little islands of, of um, intense color and then less color. So they look like a field of sesame seed grains mm -hmm. that have been flung over the, over the surface of the paper. And almost every textbook that I read says, well, you know, you just need to practice and you'll soon be able to master this elusive technique um, or don't worry about this flaw, you'll get better soon. So it's a very kind of like a kind, um, you know, expression of, um, you know, like kind of making people, uh, encouraging people to try a little harder and don't worry, it'll go away when you, when you know how to print, when you figure out how your body works and how, how all the materials work, you'll, you'll know how to get rid of this unwanted um, effect. But at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the mokuhanga, the Japanese woodblock print technique became used by a lot of creative printmakers and a lot of them deliberately use this sesame seed effect to indicate to the audience that it was hand printed, you know, that it was an, a handmade 
genuinely hand-printed item. And it has this really wonderful kind of 1920s vibe about it. You know, it's got this very lovely vibrating field of colour. And if you put another colour on top, you'll get this incredible like optical um, pixelated effect that um, gives images real depth. Um, and it has been used by many artists since as a creative technique. And Kurosaki used it a lot in his work as well. So I've been interested in defining exactly what goes into making a gomazuri, a sesame seed effect um, print. Exactly how much water do you need? How much glue do you need? How much pressure do you need? And um, can we reproduce it? And how can we quantify it? So that's been my current kind of obsession with this um, very beautiful effect. Fascinating. So you started off printing with laundry cuts and then learned mukuhanga. How was it going from that skill to another? Are they quite transferable or is it a whole different kind of knowledge? Yeah, I think prints, I think when you think in, in printmaking terms, there are a lot of similarities. So um, both liner cut and Japanese woodblock are relief prints. So the ink goes on the surface of the block and you carve away everything you want to keep white. So you're working in reverse. So all your actions are in removing something and um, everything that you make will come out as a mirror image when you print it. So it's going to be reversed left to right. So you have this kind of um, back to front way of thinking and approaching your image, which becomes, yeah, it's very transferable. You can use your lino skills for your Japanese woodblock skills and vice versa. Definitely. So can you tell us a bit more about your fellow Mokohanga students and what their motivations were for attending? All oh, right, in the class. Um, well, at Kyoto Seiki University, which is a great liberal arts college in the north of Kyoto, um, they had a really strong set of studies for ancient crafts like paper making and mokohanga, as well as a more contemporary printmaking techniques like lithography and etching and so on. So a lot of the students would come in as a print major and they would do all the different techniques and then they'd slowly specialise to mokohanga or Japanese woodblock. I don't know about their motivations, but for sure there's this incredible range of effects that you can get with woodblock that is impossible in other techniques such as screen print. For example, the colour sits inside the fibres of the paper. So there's this really beautiful glow to the image because the colour is deep in a way. There's a real tactility to the print. A lot of people printed flat colour and then speckled colour on top, so you had this real depth as well, this kind of varying levels of register as to where the image sat. And there are a few people who were experimental printmakers. For example, this incredible artist from China, who everybody called by his Japanese version of his Chinese name, Changke. And he used to print on unsized paper. So if you print on paper that doesn't have size on it, the pigment will bleed. So it's like printing on toilet paper. Like you get this incredible like wicking of your pigment away from where you printed. So you'd print this very loose image 
And then he would take some size, which is called dosa, which is like rabbit skin glue or ox tendon glue, and paint it on the surface of the paper and then print again. So he had this really beautiful range of marks, some of which were very misty and loose and soft because he was printing as if the paper couldn't hold the image where it was placed. And then he would contrast that with a very crisp image on top. So his work was really inspiring. I think we're, everyone's playing with material and, and pigment and trying to learn this technique that's very, very um, physical. That's fascinating. I'm sort of curious about how these traditional techniques are taught because Japan is a nation that is very interested in preserving its cultural heritage and that includes living national treasures, making sure that traditional crafts continue as they have done for generations. And so to hear that there's all this experimentation going on with Mokahanga is a bit surprising, I guess, for me. Yeah, you're right. But I really wonder because I think Kurosaki bridged old and new techniques with incredible skill. He was fascinated with using uh, or finding a way of making a photographic woodblock print. And when I was there, remember, they used to screen print glue onto the surface of the block and then put the block inside a sandblasting machine and sandblast the block down. It took hours, but you'd have your gloves on and your mask on, <laughs> really noisy. <laughs> and then take the block out, remove the PVA glue, and then print it as a water-based print. And a couple of my fellow students, I think um, Kawabata Chie, she made some beautiful work, I remember, using that technique. It's kind of like, how can we use an old technique in a way that also resounds with the contemporary artist, the, the person who has a cell phone and the person who, who loves photography? Mm. You know, How can we use that? I think we talked earlier about heritage and, and um, using culture after the war to think about, you know, your core belief systems. And I think there is a big movement of what they call Shinhanga, new print uh, Mokohanga artists who make images in the traditional ukiyo-e style um, of printing. And their work also has a nostalgic quality to uh, the depiction of light and the depiction of countryside and nature and, and the elements, which is conveyed by the fact that the technique which is used is the technique that was commonly used in the 18th and 19th century. And it speaks to us, it resigned, um, it kind of reverberates with our notions of um, old fashioned beauty and peace and, you know, <laughs> landscape <laughs> and appreciating the seasons. Um, because of its kind of quality, surface quality. So we need to make a new language for our contemporary age, I think. Yeah. And it sounds like there's a real mix in the tools being used and the materials as well. You have on the one hand these horsehair, boarhair brushes and uh, ox tendon glue, but you also have someone using sandblasters. And <laughs> so it seems like, a, again, a, quite a mix of the, of the traditional and the modern going on. Yeah, I, I did a workshop recently in the British Museum, which was called Inspired by Hoxai. Now, Hoxai was a complete genius, and I'm nowhere near, anywhere even a, a hundredth <laughs> as able as he was. But um, I found myself in the funny position of running a workshop for beginners. And I thought, well, 
how many people will come? And they said, well, it could be anywhere between 100 and 200 people. And I thought, well, okay, I can't carve the same block 10 times with amazing precision, but I can ask a machine to help me. So I carved and designed a block, and then I got a laser engraving company to laser engrave eight more blocks. And while it wasn't perfect, the sensation of printing from a block that a machine had carved was probably as fun as printing from a block that had been hand carved. You know, it made it really accessible to the audience. And they, I think they had a lot of fun because you could actually feel and smell and touch and hear and kind of really get inky and get involved in the, in the printing process. So, yeah, for sure, technology is helping us as much yeah. as old-style tools. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. I wish I could have been there. <laughs> well, I'll happily bring it up to Norwich and you can, you can have a go. It's a, it's a portable workshop now because it fits in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, please do come down sometime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, just to go back to the students in your class when you were learning Mokohanga, were there many Japanese there? Because it sounds like there's quite a mix of um, Japanese students and overseas students. Yeah, there are about 10 Japanese students and about four overseas students. And I remember my best friends weren't necessarily woodblock printmaking friends. So it's kind of funny, like we don't think if you're doing this discipline that you're going to be best friends with somebody else who's doing the same discipline. Mm. I was actually very stressed when I was there because I wanted to consume and be really good at something that isn't very easy to be good at immediately. So <laughs> you end up really focusing on your journey and not looking outwards to other people. Yeah. yeah. I had a similar experience when I was uh, studying in Kyoto for my year abroad and I joined the Kendo Club. Did you? Quite keen to try out some sword fighting and I spent the first six months just learning how to step backwards and forwards in the proper manner. <laughs> <laughs> I did that too, the shuffle, and I mm. was terrified. I didn't want to be hit. So I got into the <laughs> ki, but I didn't want anyone to hit me, so I kind of like lean backwards a lot. <laughs> it's not very convincing. Yeah. I didn't I didn't have much of a problem with being hit, but I, when I actually came to the fighting, I found quite reluctance to, to hit somebody else. It, it was a bit of a block. To, really? To yeah, and they kept having to lean forward saying, go on, you can hit me, it's all right. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. So, um, having looked over your prints, including the fantastic COVID Tales series, you seem to have achieved a level of depth and perspective not typically seen in traditional Yu-Gi-Oh! prints associated with woodblock printing. I'm particularly impressed with the use of reflections and mirrors to achieve this. Would you describe this as an adaptation or a continuation of the traditional techniques that you were taught in Japan? Mm. I think it's interesting because I studied history of art at school and at university. So I took a year off from the vet course to do history of art as well. And I think I have quite a big training in Western composition from observing people I love, like Rembrandt and Dormier, Hogarth, Munch. You know, the, the way they make a narrative in a space is quite scenic. 
and you, you kind of encourages the eye to rove around and see what's happening in that corner and what's in the shadows, for example. So I think that's quite a big influence. And it influenced me before I went to Japan. So I know the Japanese have a different perspective system, which was parallel perspective depiction of the world and with multiple vanishing points because they have a scroll based system like the Chinese perspectival approaches. So it is a very different kind of grounding, like a classical grounding. But I'm fascinated by mirrors and windows because I think the print is like a window into another world. Mm-hmm. And in a way, you question, because I told you about having to reverse everything and everything you carve away is white, not dark, it kind of makes you think on a very metaphoric level, where does a truth lie? Is it in the thing I keep or is it in the thing that I eliminate? I draw myself left-handed on the blocks that I've made And when I print, I come out as a right-handed person again. So it's this kind of duality. It's a natural duality because of the medium of print. You're kind of asserting truth, but you had to lie in order to make the truth come out. You see what I mean? And in a way, a mirror is like that too. You know, we look at ourselves on Zoom and we see a mirror version because that's the face that we're familiar with in the mirror. And we're presented to the world as a flipped version you know, the right way around, as it were. But we are mediated by the screen. So once again, you don't really know what I look like. You don't know how tall I am or what I'm wearing, what trousers I'm wearing. <laughs> you, you have this kind of like partial view and you assume the rest. And I kind of like that sort of playful, ironic mystery behind making partial views, partial mirrors and playing with that truth, lie, duality in my images. Mm-hmm. So for example, the, um, are you talking about mirror, mirror? <laughs> it's a, the print of a swimming pool changing room. And um, mm-hmm. they didn't have a mirror. They had a piece of metal that was beaten flat to act as a mirror because it was a very kind of council run swimming pool. So not particularly rich. And I think this mirror had been there for a long time. So you'd go to the swimming pool change in the changing room, you're getting ready for a swim, you'd walk past this piece of metal and you would see a grotesque figure with a very dumpy body and amazingly long arms and you would <laughs> it would really stop you in horror. Like, is that really me? Is that what I look like? I know I, I'm going for a swim, so I've got my swimming costume on, but do I really look this disfigured, for example? <laughs> um, so I kind of made this print because it's it's about the, that kind of humor like maybe we do look like that maybe our eyes are wrong maybe that's you know <laughs> it was an accurate reflection of my inner soul and you know, <laughs> the surface value the, the way that light hits the surface of my skin is actually falsehood you don't know where the truth lies anyway they upgraded and they bought a new mirror about a year after I started swimming there So I made another print about a woman hanging out in front of the mirrors, slightly inspired by my time in Japan, because I love the bath ritual. But the second print is called, She Doesn't Care If We Stare. And it's a picture of a woman who's changing in front of the mirror and she has no clothes on. 
And I know in Japan, it's completely normal to go to the bathhouse and have no clothes on and hang out together without clothes on. But in the UK, for sure, there's a real sense of surprise and outrage and amusement and maybe embarrassment when you see somebody with no clothes on who's really happy having no clothes on in a changing room in a female space. And so I made this print about this, this lady who was just hanging out in front of the mirror with a lot of people looking at her in this very questioning way. So it's about why are we shy in the UK? Why are people not shy in Japan? Maybe that has been the one kind of thing I've taken back from Japan that's made its way into a print. Um, mm. but yeah. Why do we have these different approaches? Just to go back to the, uh, the Zoom perspective, something I found quite amusing. I've been networking with people through Zoom over the last couple of years, mm. uh, particularly through the podcast, uh, meeting a lot of academics that way. And when I've met people in person, they're quite shocked to see that I'm a fairly tall person, oh, yes. um, which doesn't come across much just head and shoulders. But also, I guess it means that I don't sound like a tall person. Like, is there a way to sound like a tall person? I'm not <laughs> quite sure. <laughs> But yeah, it's definitely makes you think a lot about how much your physical appearance is different from your online appearance, I suppose. Yeah. It's not just that, isn't it? It's the quality of our voices and the fact that we still have a very acute sense of smell, even though it's not as good as dogs. And we probably respond to each other's pheromones and body heat and microbiome and chemicals, <laughs> you know, I always think we probably exchange bacteria when we hang out within a meter of each other. And mm. those things probably affect how we feel about each other. And they're very hard to replicate on the screen. Although we're getting used to it, I think we're getting better at it. Like our tolerance level has increased and in a way it's become like a window instead of a, an alien communication tool. So... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, definitely. So I understand you're connected to a worldwide network of printmakers. Uh, how widespread is Mokohanga and how should this international spread of the practice challenge our understanding of it as a traditional Japanese art style? Okay, I'm on the edges of the Mokohanga world because although I studied it in Japan 15 years ago, I mainly make lino cuts and have just come back to it with my uh, PhD. But I recently attended this international conference and there are about a hundred people there from all over the world. It actually ran through the time zones. So it ran for 48 hours without a break. Wow. So it started in Japan and then it moved to Europe and then it would end up in North America and go round again and again. So you just had to sleep and miss one time zone in order to retain some sense of sanity. But it's definitely global. There was a really beautiful talk on Mokohanga in, I think, Argentina. I'd have to look that up, where somebody had said that it was a really great technique, but it, she was a pioneer in bringing it to schools. I think the appeal of the technique is that it's quite low tech. So you can adapt it. You can use Western printmaking papers. You can use uh, toothbrushes at a pinch, 
would be terribly difficult, but you can use a toothbrush or a hairbrush or a shoe brush to print from. You can use watercolor paints and you can use wallpaper paste instead of traditional Japanese rice paste. So the principle of the technique is portable and possible in a domestic sphere. And、uh, you'll see a lot of artists from all over the world trying to make new approaches to printing discs. There's a wonderful lady in Australia called Rosalind Keane who's made these ball bearing baren, so ball bearing handheld printing discs、um, that she sells across the world. But they're like a handmade thing, like a solution to something because the traditional object is hard to get. So, yeah, in a way, it's a principle. As much as a museum style preserved craft heritage. It's a living expression, living artistic expression. I don't know how、mm. to say it properly, but something like that. It's kind of、yeah. adapting、That's、to organic. Organic, yeah, it's organically、mm. evolving. And I had a lot of fun because I've been using fruit scale to weigh my. Hand movements to figure out how much pressure I put on the back of the block,、um, oh. <laughs> or、um, using syringes to measure the amount of glue that I put on the block to see how much do we really put when we put an amount that feels right. So, yeah, it's a kind of ever adapting technique. It would be a little bit like a recipe for a stew, and you're using new ingredients. It seems to me like the shared root of. Heritage and the art form is the traditional technique, but then they branch off where heritage tends to focus on preserving the original technique, whereas the active artists like yourself are inspired by it and then go on to adapt it to suit your own expressions. Definitely, yeah, I think that's a good and and that's a test of a vibrant living language, isn't it? When new words crop up, new expressions, it shows you it's being used and it's being practically adapted for. Convenience as well. So I like it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, Wonjin. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us any other projects that you're currently working on? Well, the Diary of a Printmaker prints that I made are going to be in a show in Hong Kong next year as an entirety. And I've made about 170 of them. So it would be nice to see them all in one place. And the VNA just released a film of me printing. So, if you want to see me in my space making lino cuts and printing at home and in East London Printmakers, you can watch that video on YouTube. And I'm part of this conference called the Impact Printmaking Conference, which we run at the Centre for Print Research in Bristol. It's happening in September. And I have a panel paper called Meet Me at the Edge of Infinity. And it's all about how printmaking allows you to lay down color blends and gradients. One of the traditional words is bokashi, which is the word for a gradient. And I love the way that it's an expression of atmosphere and color and shadow and mystery. So I'm going to do a paper there in、um, September this year, to which you are very welcome. So, a few things. Yeah. Great. And if our listeners want to try one of your workshops,、uh, when can they find out more information about that? So, I sometimes teach at East London Printmakers in London, and I'm giving a workshop in 
Ditchling Museum of Art and Craft, I think, near Brighton, sometime in June. Do you know Frank Branwin and Urushibara? I haven't heard them before. So Branwin was a Walthamstow artist, and Urushibara was a Japanese artist who came over and lived in England for about a dozen years. And he collaborated with Brangwyn and made, they made beautiful prints, really beautiful prints. And so they're having a big show from April, I think. And they've asked me to teach a workshop there. But maybe we should make a date for a workshop in Norwich and I'll come up with my suitcase of blocks. <laughs> we can, yes, do. We can uh, <laughs> do a, a, a crash course in printing and then try carving and making your own image. I think it would be fun. That'd be fantastic. I will get the ball rolling there. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me today, Wonjin. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure too. You can find a link to Wonjin's website in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japanandnorwich.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Join us for our next episode with Dr. Viviana Andrescu, where we discuss public opinion on capital punishments in Japan. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.